This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, it is on page 873. Again, the scripture reading is from Luke chapter 14. Please rise to honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for your word, your holy and inerrant word. And now, as it has been read and we seek for it to be preached we ask for your spirit to accompany the preaching of your word that ministry might take place right now, that you, you would minister to each and every one of us, that you would encourage or to convict us, to comfort us or to console us, whatever it is that, that needs to happen for your glory and for our good. I'll do that now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think most of us have probably cut back on air travel these days due to the pandemic. So that means there's one human phenomenon that we have, uh, haven't really been exposed to as frequently as before. I think it'll be good to refresh ourselves, especially for those of you who haven't flown in a while. I'm, I'm talking about that second the plane comes to a stop in front of a gate, and the fastened seatbelt sign turns off, and in those frank, frantic few moments, we witness the strange phenomenon of aircraft passengers colliding with one another, rubbing up against total strangers, jostling for position to access their carry-on luggage in the overhead compartment, and squeezing on into the aisle, all in order to exit the plane first. Now granted, some may have good reason. Maybe they have a tight connection and the departure gate is on the other side of the terminal. That could be the case, but, but let's face it, 
Most people are just being selfish. They're only thinking about themselves. And when you have that mindset, then it's easy to make assumptions that your time and and your schedule and your needs are more valuable and, and important than other people's. The airplane cabin is one of those unique settings where so much is revealed about a person in just one situation. It's a real test of character. It can expose things. It can expose selfishness and self-conceit and thereby show us where we need to grow, where we need to mature in selflessness and humility. Well, church, the same could be said about a dinner party. In the Gospel of Luke, meals with Jesus, particularly dinner parties or banquets or wedding feasts, They function as unique settings where so much is revealed about the characters in just one encounter with Christ. As we've been going through this series, and we've mentioned before, Luke, the author, in arranging his gospel account, uses meals with Jesus as a plot device in order to move the storyline along, but also to develop his characters And so far, we've seen Jesus and his willingness to share table fellowship with the outcasts and the marginalized of society. We've seen him gladly receive the hospitable gestures of great sinners. He welcomes the weak and lowly. But he also welcomes the high and mighty. He accepts the dinner invitations of prominent Pharisees and other religious leaders. He's He's really not partial to either the rich or the poor, the the religious or the irreligious, the great or the small, because he sees all of them as those who need his ministry. All of them are as sick, are sick in a similar manner, and he is the great physician who alone can cure them all. That's why he welcomes them all. Well, this morning... We are now in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. Uh, This is part of a larger chunk of chapter 14 where Jesus has accepted the dinner invitation to the home of a ruler of the Pharisees, one of their chief leaders. And so in this one setting, three episodes occur, one involving a miraculous healing and two involving the telling of parables. All of them taken together, are, they really function as a critique of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders of the day, exposing them for their selfishness and self-conceit. Well, this morning, we're going to just study the first two episodes uh, within this chunk. And so that's just going to be verses 1 to 11. We're going to save uh, the third episode for next week. So what I've decided to do with this message is to break it up into three sections based on the actions of Jesus. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, there's an outline. First, we're going to see Jesus restore a man to health. Second, Jesus rearranges a dinner party. And third, Jesus reorders our view of greatness. So that's where we're going to be going today in this message. Let's begin by considering verses 1 to 6, where Jesus restores a man to health. So let me read verses 1 and 2 again. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. 
Okay, so we're told that this meal with Jesus took place on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. In the fourth commandment, God commanded his people to rest from their labor, to do no work on the Sabbath. So by Jesus' day, every Israelite in town would have spent every Sabbath together in the synagogue, corporately worshiping the Lord, the Lord Yahweh. And it was customary in those days for any guest rabbi who taught in synagogue that Sabbath to be invited over to share a meal with the leaders of the synagogue. A banquet would be held in that, in, in, in that home for that guest rabbi. And so here we see that something similar happening. Jesus probably taught as a guest teacher that day, and this banquet is taking place in the home of the ruler of the Pharisees along with all the other Pharisees in town. Now notice with me how it says at the end of verse 1 that they were watching Jesus carefully. Now that sets the mood for the story. It tells us that this was not a friendly meal. This was not a friendly audience. Now this was a trap. We have forewarning of this earlier in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 11, verses 53 to 54, it says, As he, Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to, to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. So, what, so that gives you really a sense of what Jesus is walking into in our story. These Pharisees were lying in wait. They were waiting for him to slip up in something that he might say or do. They were looking for any reason that they could find to accuse him before the authorities. Well, we're told in verse 2 that suddenly a, a certain man was at the banquet, a man who had dropsy. Now, that's an antiquated term. I, I don't think uh, you, you physicians out there use that term anymore. The medical condition is more commonly known today as edema. That's where you have an excess of, of fluid in your body, typically um, uh, uh, collecting in your limbs, in your arms, your legs. So dropsy wasn't a disease in itself, but rather it was a symptom of a, a disease, whether uh, it was uh, typically either a heart or, or kidney or liver disease. Now, it really does make you wonder, what was this man with dropsy doing in the home of a prominent Pharisee filled with a whole bunch of other Pharisees? Because they typically would have avoided someone like that with that kind of a physical condition out of fear of uncleanliness. The Pharisees were obsessed with ritual purity. They wouldn't, they wouldn't get close to someone like that. So that, that suggests that this man was put here at this party for a purpose. He was likely planted at this banquet to see how Jesus would respond, to see if he would heal again on the Sabbath. Because so far in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already healed someone three times on the Sabbath, three separate episodes earlier. So it was this intentional effort on the part of the Lord to expose the callousness and the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Because there was nothing in Mosaic law prohibiting you from healing on the Sabbath. It wasn't against God's law. But over time, 
within rabbinic tradition, the Pharisees had developed this entire system of rules and regulations with the idea of trying to help people to keep God's law. And so in this case, they wanted to give people a practical idea of what it actually looks like to keep the Sabbath, to do no work on the Sabbath. And so they developed a whole system of rules and regulations to regulate Sabbath. So the Pharisees had a catalog of activities that you could do or you couldn't do, and healing was one of those things you couldn't do. It was considered a work. They probably would have argued, you can just wait until tomorrow to get healed. Don't do it on the Sabbath. Just come back tomorrow for a healing. Well, so since Jesus had already dismissed their rules three times earlier, they were now trying to trap Jesus to, to see if he would violate their rules once more, and this time to do it in front of a ruler of the Pharisees. But the question that Jesus poses to them in verse 3 really sets a trap for them over a question over the law. So look at verse 3 again. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What is the law of God actually say. Now they realized they were in a bind because however they answer, those Pharisees are not going to like the implications of their answer. If they answered yes, that it is lawful, then what are you complaining about? And that would imply that your traditions, your rules are contradicting God's law. So they don't want to answer yes. But if they answer no, if it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, and so you should just ignore this guy with dropsy, then that would expose their callousness towards human suffering. It would probably expose that this was all a plant. This was all a trap. So not liking either answer, they gave no answer at all. And verse 4 says, but they remained silent. And so Jesus then took the man and healed him and sent him away. And then in verse 5, Jesus presents a hypothetical scenario which everyone could relate to and which everyone would answer similarly. He says in verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The reason they couldn't reply is not that they didn't, have, they didn't know the answer, they didn't know how they would answer. No, no, they, they knew exactly how they would answer his question. They just didn't want to admit it. They, don't, they didn't want to say it out loud because they knew that their answer would expose their selfishness. They knew that when matters get personal, like if it's their son or if it's their property, like if it's their ox falling into a well and at, at, at the risk of drowning, they would, without hesitation, respond with compassion. They would go immediately to rescue their son or to rescue their ox. But if matters don't affect them personally, when you're dealing with someone else's problems, then compassion goes out the window and all they care about was being right. That kind of hypocrisy reveals a fundamental selfishness where you treat your people and your possessions as far more important and valuable than someone else's. That kind of selfishness is what Jesus exposes at this dinner party by simply restoring a man to health. See, the Pharisees, they were so fixed 
on whether or not Jesus kept the law as they understood it. They were so stuck in their world of principles and abstractions that they lost sight of reality in front of them. There was a fellow human being in front of them who was healed of his suffering and made whole. It was a glorious miracle, and yet they completely missed that aspect of the story. They were so fixated on, on their rules, on their regulations, on ideas and abstractions, missing the reality, the actual person before them. Friends, let's, let's learn from the Pharisees, as in learning from their negative example. When it came to keeping the Sabbath, they were so concerned with being right in their own eyes that they grew blind to human suffering and to the needs around them. Friends, let's beware of this very outcome. Look, we should care about God's law. I mean, we should definitely care to live according to God's law and to help each other do the same. But friends, you can be so fixed on doing the right thing and being right in your own eyes that you grow blind to the needs of those around you. We can be so focused on ideas in the world of principles and abstractions, and we totally miss the suffering person that's standing right in front of us. So for example, you can be passionately pro-life and be able to articulate convincing arguments, but be blind to the scared woman in front of you with an unplanned pregnancy. You can be ardently anti-racist and be eloquent in arguing for greater inclusion, but be blind to the actual person in your group or at church who feels excluded because they don't fit the mold. You can be a committed Calvinist and strongly believe in God's sovereign grace, but overlook actual lost people around you who need to hear about that very grace. My point is, is that we, like the Pharisees, can become experts in biblical interpretations and right theologies, but fail to live it out because we fail to see the real needs of real people around us. Keep your eyes on actual people and their actual suffering, lest you lose compassion and grow calloused, just like these Pharisees. I think that's the warning for us as we see what's happening in this first episode in chapter 14. Well, if we continue on in our text, if we go on now to verse 7. Jesus is still at the same dinner party, and he tells his guests a parable after watching how they chose places of honor at the banquet table. Now, it, it appears as if we're kind of moving on to a new topic. We're focusing on something different but actually, I think there is a likely connection between this parable of the wedding feast and the, the, the prior healing of a man with dropsy. Because in, 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 in antiquity, there was a proverb that was often said. It goes like this. Nothing is as dry as a person with dropsy. That was an ancient proverb. Nothing is as dry as a person with dropsy. Which is a way of saying... That those who crave something 
are never satisfied. It's because it was believed back then that that excessive accumulation of water in the body was an indication of an insatiable thirst. Why do they have all that accumulation of liquid? Well, it's probably because they're always drinking, 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 and never satisfied. So dropsy, in those days, was figuratively used to describe the greedy or the gluttonous. It was a physical manifestation of, of that internal, insatiable thirst. And so if you think about it, dropsy is actually a very fitting image to describe the Pharisees. They who had an insatiable thirst for praise, an insatiable thirst for recognition, for people to notice them. So the healing of this man with dropsy really was both an indictment against the Pharisees, but also an an invitation for them. The Pharisees had a disorder no less harmful than this man. They craved attention. They thirsted for praise and recognition. But the way that they pursued it, Jesus knew that they would never be satisfied. And that leads to verse 7. And here in verse 7, the tables have turned. Now Jesus is the one doing the watching. They were watching him earlier, but now he's watching them, seeing how, how all these guests try to find a seat at the banquet table, and he, what he sees in their behavior is troubling. Their pride and self-conceit is totally exposed by the jostling for the best seats in the house. Ancient records describe for us that these banquets would usually have a U-shaped table with three-person couches lined up next to each other along this table. And the host would be sitting at the very bottom of that U, uh, sitting on one of those three-person couches. And so that means there was on that couch a seat to his left and to his right. And those two seats were considered the greatest, the seats of greatest honor at this banquet. And after that, the next set of couches uh, closest to the bottom of the U where the host was, that would be considered the next best seats, and of course so on and so forth until you get to the very tips of that U-shaped table. And it would be your rank, your status in society that would determine where you sat at the banqueting table and how close you were to the host. So Jesus starts by telling them, what you shouldn't do when you enter into one of these feasts. When you arrive at a wedding feast, he says, do not choose a place of honor. Don't choose the best seats available. Why? Well, because a more distinguished, honored guest may arrive after you and the host will have to ask you to move. And you'll probably end up at those very last seats at the tip of the U because all the other seats will have been filled by then. And Jesus warns in verse 9, you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. You're going to have to get up in front of everyone at the party and move seats and go to the very end. And that is going to be shameful. The point is is that having an overinflated view of your own importance can lead to public shame and disgrace. 
So what should you do when you enter a party like this, when you go to a wedding feast? Well, Jesus explains in verse 10. Verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. So if you humble yourself and you take the lower seat, Jesus says the host may ask you to move up higher, to move up closer to him. Moving up a seat in honor is being contrasted with giving up your seat in shame. Now, this teaching is actually not unique to Jesus. He didn't come up with this. He's actually drawing from ancient wisdom literature. In Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 to 7, it says this. Listen to this. It's Proverbs 25. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Jesus is drawing from the book of Proverbs. Now, what's the point? What's the principle? Well, friends, it's this. Honor is not to be grabbed. It is to be given. Honor is not to be grabbed. It is to be given. You don't seek to exalt yourself. You wait to be exalted. Jesus is saying that 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 attitude ought to guide your approach to any dinner party. Now, friends, don't don't misinterpret him. He's not advocating for for a false humility where you say, oh, I'm I'm so bad, I'm so lowly, I'm just going to take this lowest seat. But internally, you think you deserve far better, and you're just waiting for someone to agree, someone who will agree by disagreeing with your stated assessment of yourself and, and to tell you, oh, no, 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 you're so good, you're so good, you're so great, come on, come on, take, take, take this better seat, come up higher, come up closer. If that's what's motivating you, if that's your mindset, if that's why you're, you're, you're doing what you do, well, of course, that's false humility. I've said it, I've heard it said before that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That means you don't need to put on a false humility telling everyone how lowly you are when you actually think that you're pretty great. No, humility is thinking of yourself less, as in less often. In Jesus' parable, that would mean you would enter into a wedding feast and be more concerned about the other guests around you, thinking about them, making sure that they get a good seat. If that's your mindset going into the party, if that's what's motivating you, well, then you probably will take the lowest seat because you're thinking about the good of others, not out of a false humility, not because you're trying to game the system in order to get moved up higher, but because you truly do care about others. That, my friends, is a display of true humility. Jesus says, if that's your position, well, then get ready to be exalted. I know you're not asking for it, but get ready to be moved up. Honor is not to be grabbed. 
it is to be given. Friends, nothing encourages me more in our church than to see our members demonstrate true humility. Not jostling for status or recognition, but humbly thinking of themselves less and serving others more. Friends, you may not realize, you may not realize that we have members in our church who have served as high-level executives on publicly traded companies worth hundreds of millions of dollars and some worth multiple billions. But on a Sunday morning, you'll find them in the back office counting coins out of offering bags and entering data into a spreadsheet. Some of the most prominent physicians in the city of Houston worship here but most of us have no idea how acclaimed they are in their profession as they sit next to us in Sunday school class, learning together, sitting together under God's word. To me, that's a beautiful picture of humility. That's how we can choose the lowest seat in the life of our church. We can seek to outdo one another in showing honor, not grabbing for it, not jostling after it. We can humbly serve each other with the attitude that there is no act of service too lowly for me. If my Lord could wash feet, then there is nothing too undignified for me to do. I think that, my friends, is what Jesus is teaching by this parable. I also think Jesus anticipated that some might assume that all he was trying to teach was some proper social etiquette, just teaching his disciples how to conduct themselves at a party. But no, he had something broader in mind, and that's why he sums up this parable in verse 11 with a theological principle that doesn't just apply to dinner parties, but really applies to all of life. This is a principle for for life itself. Jesus is not just rearranging our approach to a banquet, he is reordering our approach to life, especially to our pursuit of honor and greatness. And so this is the third thing that we're going to see Jesus do in our text. He reorders our view of greatness. Listen with me to verse 11. Here's here's Jesus converting the point of the parable now into a proverb. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, notice how this inversion was clearly illustrated in that parable he told. Those who exalted themselves, those who grabbed after honor, were humbled, and those who humbled themselves, who were willing to take the lowest seat, were eventually honored. They were exalted. So notice with me how Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to be exalted. There's nothing wrong with being honored. There are places of honor at the table, after all, and someone is going to be seated in them. Now, this talking about seats of honor at the right hand, the left hand of the host, really has me thinking of that place in Mark's gospel where James and John asked to be given those very seats in the kingdom come. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 37. And they, the brothers, James and John, said to Jesus, 
Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They want to sit on Jesus' couch. They want to be the guy on the right and on the left at the center of the banquet. That's what they're asking for. Now, what I find so fascinating is that Jesus didn't contest the idea of there being seats of honor in heaven. He didn't say, what are you guys talking about? There are no special seats in heaven. Don't think like that. Everyone's getting the same seat. That's not how Jesus replied to James and John. He said, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. He's saying that the granting of this honor to sit at my right or my left is really the Father's prerogative. It's not mine. But while he can't promise James and John that they will be sitting in those special seats, the staggering truth is that somebody will be. Someone is going to be sitting at the right and at the left of Jesus. The Father has prepared those seats next to Jesus for two particular saints. And I guess we're just going to have to find out who they are when we get there. And we can assume that when we get there, we're going to be so conformed into the likeness of Christ that it won't bother us if it turns out it's not our seat. But the fact that such seats of honor do exist, even in the kingdom come, affirms that that desire that we all have for glory and for honor is not necessarily a bad thing. In its purest form, it can actually be a good thing because it's a God-given thing. It's part of the image of God in us. He made us with a longing for greatness. But the question is, how are you trying to obtain that greatness? Are you grabbing for greatness or are you patiently waiting to receive it? In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that those who seek for glory and honor will be rewarded. But then he immediately says in the very next verse that those who are self-seeking will face wrath and fury. And so apparently there is a way to seek for glory and honor that is commendable in a way that would not be considered self-seeking. There is a difference between seeking glory and seeking to glorify yourself. That's a difference that the scriptures make. It's the same difference between being given honor and grabbing for honor. The way of greatness, according to Jesus, is to patiently wait to receive glory and honor from the Lord himself. Wait for him to seat you at the banquet table. Those who try to exalt themselves, who, who think that they're good enough to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment, who think that they deserve the best seats at that great banquet in the kingdom come, those who are self-seeking and self-conceited will be humiliated. Because where you end up sitting at that great banquet doesn't depend on your high opinion of yourself. It all depends on the opinion of your host. 
It depends on how he views you. It depends on how how God views you and your status. That's the all-important question. How does God see you? How does he view your status? And it really all comes down to your relationship with his son. Are you strangers to the son? Are you mere acquaintances? Or is he your Lord and you're his disciple? Are you one with him? Are you in Christ as in in a saving union with Christ? If so, then all that is true of Christ is true of you. All that he accomplished is counted as yours. He humbled himself In his incarnation, he chose the lowest place. He chose the lowest position by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, his life, death, and resurrection embodied this proverb in verse 11. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Christ. That's his life, death, and resurrection. So now think about what that means. If you are in a saving union with Christ, then that means his highly exalted status is yours. You have been raised with Christ, you are seated with him at the right hand of God. You're actually in a seat of honor. You are at the right hand of God in Christ our Lord. If you are a Christian, that's how the host of heaven views you. He sees you just as he sees his son. You are holy, you are chosen, you are dearly loved. Now keep thinking about the implications here. If your highly exalted status in the eyes of the host of heaven is secure in Christ, and since Christ never changes, he remains the same, then your status before God will always remain the same. If that's true, then you no longer have to imitate the patterns of this world out of fear and anxiety, jostling all the time for position, competing with each other over rank, grabbing after power or position or praise. You can begin to think less about yourself and less about your status and start thinking more about others and about their needs and about how you might be used by God to alleviate their suffering. That is how the gospel humbles you. That's how it makes you more like Christ, the humble Christ. Friends, don't feel bad if you want to be great. Don't be ashamed to seek for honor, but be careful to adopt the right approach. Greatness and honor must not be grabbed. It must be given. And the good news is that God graciously gives it in Christ to all those who humble themselves. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gift, the gift of Christ Jesus, our humble Savior. Lord, thank you that by faith in Christ, we may be one with Christ and that all that is his may be ours, that that exalted status of his may be ours. Lord, thank you that you see us now as you see your son, Jesus. May that truth be internalized by all those who trust in Jesus, that we might live with that confidence, to live with that surety, so that we may truly be humble and truly serve those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.